Today's show is sponsored by Mac Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I'm wearing the socks right now. W. Kamal Bell can co-sign that I'm wearing socks. You are wearing socks. Like, you know, I can't confirm. I'm not going to take them off and show you the label, but they're from Mac Weldon. How do they look, Kamal? They look beautiful. They look like socks that if... If I was in the sock need place, I would buy those socks. We've always got sock needs, right? That's true. Unless I you're on the, vacation. I well, no, I'm on. I had to buy socks because I'm on the road right now, and I ran out of socks, and so I wish I'd bought those. Socks. Come out if you wanted to buy socks from Mac Weldon, and you want to get twenty percent off. You go to macweldon.com, put the promo code Recode in. That's Recode Media, and you get twenty percent off. Pretty good deal. And for some reason, you don't like the socks. Not possible. You get to hang on to them. Tell Mac Weldon you don't like the socks. Tell them the straight face. They will send you your money back. They're easy to buy. They're easy to have delivered. They're easy to keep if you don't want to pay for them. W. Kamau Bell says they look like socks. He's correct. Go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. Get 20% off. Tell them I sent you. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here with W. Kamau Bell, who does so many things, I cannot list them all. They're not even written down here. He's a podcaster. He's a comedian. He's on CNN. Oh, he's written a book? Have I got it all? He's nodding. He's so tired. Of um, no, no, yes. I just didn't want to interrupt your flow. So, uh, so you're... You, and I'm, you, I'm a dad. That's, you're a dad. That's too. Two kids. Two kids. Two daughters. I yeah. did my research. We only make girls. <laughs> Rather than me butcher the titles of all your podcasts and all yes. your and all your TV shows, you want to rattle them off for me? Yes. Uh, I have the one that's currently active. The most active is called Politically Reactive. Sorry, right, you've got two podcasts, right? I've got three. Sorry. <laughs> I've got One is a radio show and podcast, but I've got Politically Reactive with Harry Kondabolu, which is a political podcast hosted by two comedians. And that started up again, second that season. Again that's why we're here. That's why your publicist has, yeah. has sent you here. Then that's what, let's talk about that. Okay. Uh, I never know where I'm, why I'm at, where I'm at. So <laughs> but we'll talk about I'm here to promote Politically Reactive. Screw those other podcasts. Yeah, so then I have two other podcasts that I won't mention. Don't mention those, uh, but people can also see on CNN. On CNN, the second season of United Shades of America just started. Uh, so yeah, we are we we are in the, we have eight episodes this season, and every episode we basically focus on a group that Donald Trump insulted during the campaign. So we started with immigrants. Was that was episode one? I think by the time uh, this one airs, we'll be, we'll be two episodes into it. Oh, then Chicago, which is we all know Donald Trump likes to it's, insult. It's Chicago. the worst place ever. Yeah, carnage. We'll talk about that in a minute. There's a book out. Yeah, the book, which I I don't even know the whole title. I need to memorize it. <laughs> Google uh, W. Kamau Bell it's, book. It's the awkward thoughts of W. Kamau Bell. Tales of a six foot four African American, and it, there's a lot of words. What's it about? It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's about I awkwardly can't remember the title of my book. Uh, it's about a, really a love letter to the people in my life and the forces in my world that have created that have taught me that awkward conversations can lead to positive change. And you know, and how I feel like at this point in America, we need more of those awkward conversations. And when you're not writing and you're not podcasting, you're mm-hmm. not on CNN, you are doing comedy. Yeah, I have a stand up comedy tour that st- that uh, starts uh, soon. May 10th, I think I'll be in Colorado Springs, and then May 11th, I'll be in Boulder, Colorado, I think, and then I'll be in Eureka, and yeah, I'll be in the, the, lots of places. We are awfully busy. Thanks for making time. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for letting me stop by. I'll check you guys out later. <laughs> you're so busy that then when this podcast ends, I'm going to leave this room and you're going to record more stuff. That's, I am. That's literally that's happening. It's, I know I'm busy because people who are legit busy look at me like, you're busy. And I'm like, oh, that's a problem, huh? When you run into Kevin Hart and he's like, you're doing too much. <laughs> let, let, <laughs> that didn't happen. Let's, to me, 
<laughs> Let's start with the reason uh, your publicist sent you here to talk about the yeah. podcast. Well, I, I want to compare, compare and contrast, right? Because mm-hmm. you've got the CNN show, you've mm-hmm. got your own podcast. The CNN show is paid for by CNN, owned yes. by Time Warner. Yes. Uh, the podcast is produced by First Look. This is the group that comes out of... Uh, Oh, my God, I'm going to forget his name. The guy who made all his money at eBay. eBay, yeah. Uh, Pierre Omidyar. Yes. Deliberately set up as a lefty sort of response to Fox a few years ago. They They fund The the Intercept. The Intercept and their podcast, (coughs) Intercepted. So you've got two different versions of come out, it seems to me, on on those two products. Is that fair? Yeah, I think every... I have a lot of projects because I think there's a a lot of different versions of of me. I was going to be in the third person, but I said I didn't do that. Uh, <laughs> like a first round draft. What pick. does Kamau think? Yeah, Kamau. But yeah, there's. I think the great thing about the current media landscape is that you don't have to pick one path. Uh, you can sort of, you can sort of have as many paths as you have time to execute those paths well, and that people appreciate those things. So you know, it comes all the way down from like I have a podcast. I will mention Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time. Period, which is just about the fact that me and my co-host Kevin Avery love Denzel Washington, think he's the greatest actor of all time. Period. Uh, my other podcast come out right now is a public radio show based out of the Bay Area because it's a way to me sort of stay connected to the Bay Area because I travel a lot so it's an hour long live talk show that airs on the radio and then uh, yeah and then CNN is like you know it's like this I, I had a TV show before and I got invited to do a pilot with CNN for this show called, that's United Shades of America and it was like I thought I was out of TV and I was like well I'll try this because it felt interesting to me and it's we're in second season we were nominated for an Emmy so but what, what I was getting at is is the political reactive one I remember listening to the one you guys did right after the election this is the second yeah. season you did it right after the election and like many people you guys were in despair right yeah. in the morning you had Chris uh, who did you have on Jake Tapper, Jake Tapper on. yeah. Jake, how are we going to get through this? And yeah. he was doing his, I still work for CNN, so I can't quite say what I want to say. Yeah, but. we're going to have him back on because I think he's got thoughts now that he's actually had to swim through this. But that one, if we're if we're doing a bell curve, right, you're, you're yeah. at that sort of, I don't know what you're left, right, you're at the left end of the bell curve. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. defiantly progressive. Yeah. And, um, talk about who we vote for. Talk, talk about who about, you vote yeah. for and, and, and talk about race and gender, I think, probably in a way that you're, reflects your personality more than the CNN one seems like he's deliberately said, well, so you still like stake out. You're you're on the left mm-hmm, edge of the mm-hmm, spectrum, right? But mm-hmm. it's it seems like it's deliberately more centrist. Is that well? Fair? Uh, I think the for me, it's about the nature of the execution of the thing. Politically reactive is based really in a friendship between me and Hari and conversations we would have anyway, and then we invite other people into those conversations. And so it's sort of it's like for me, it's like if we met those people in a coffee shop, we would have those same conversations. Like, it's just about, like, let's just talk. So there's a really sort of, like, low barrier for entry, and also it's like... We're having a conversation, you guys can come listen. Yeah, you're keeping it loose. You're sort of like, and you're and so you'll get frustrated. You'll get, ah! When you put a TV show together, there's so many more people involved, and in that so many more people have opinions, and so many people more... And you're also trying to execute very specific things, like in a show, you know, you may talk to... We may talk to legit like 25 people for an hour show and we may cut that down to 10 people and each interview may be a half hour or longer and we cut those down to two or three minutes. So if you saw like the hour long interview I had with somebody, it might look more like politically reactive. But once you cut it down, it's like you're sort of like, what are the best moments that are, that are the most indicative of this conversation? So politically reactive ran through the campaign, ended after the election. Yeah. What's different other than the fact that Donald Trump's elected this time around? It sounded at the end of that episode that I listened to that that you guys maybe were thinking you wouldn't continue. Well, the the first look only really contracted us to do an episode through the election. So it was was a cliffhanger. Yeah, it was. Yes, they were like, well, and then Hillary will be president. We won't need to talk about politics anymore. (laughs) So, so, I mean, I think that's what everybody was thinking. Nobody's going to want a political podcast when Hillary's president because we'll just be like, you know, dancing in the streets every day. Which is, I turns out, it was opposite. Yeah. So I think when Trump was elected, it suddenly, and also our podcast became 
popular pretty as far as in that in that space pretty quickly and there was like clearly a, a hardcore following that when that happened it was like oh well it looks like we could make more episodes people want more episodes and also people need more episodes like every day that we didn't we weren't back every day people were like when are you coming back please come back you know what do you think the purpose of the podcast serves and, and again how it changed from last year to this year I think I, I'm thinking about you and also uh, other folks I've seen go through this with uh, the Keeping 1600 guys who are now Pod Save America, right? Mm-hmm. We're like, yeah, they were they were sort of like snarky commentary. And now like, oh no, we gotta, yeah, we gotta mobilize people. Do you uh-huh. do you feel the same sense of responsibility, or it's still the same podcast, just the circumstances are different? I do think it isn't. It is still the same podcast, but the stakes have changed. So I do think that our. I think in all of my the thing that connects me that connects all this work is that I feel like in many ways I'm a conduit to pe- the smarter, better people. Like <laughs> so, for example, I can have a conversation about Black Lives Matter. I can tell jokes on stage about Black Lives Matter. But why don't we talk to Patrice Colors? And so yeah, for me, yeah. It's like, Find the smart person and who, deliver them to the people. Yeah. yeah. And it also, we, I think the thing we do do is because we're comedians, we reveal those people in different lights, and we sort of are able to make people relax and be funnier who maybe wouldn't be funny in other situations so you know i think people when they our audience isn't necessarily going jake tapper yay <laughs> like yay jake they go jake tapper huh and by the end the interview, and the like, reason they're saying that right is because they think of jake tapper as the CNN sellout and, and mainstream yeah, and also cnn and cnn at that point was you know was accused of being responsible for the election in a still lot of are yeah yeah still, still are. happening and and i think i think Many of the journalists at CNN ref- understand that, and Jeff Zucker's talked about it, and they're better journalists now. I think they've really like dug in. I mean, Jake Tapper's the first one to go at all Kellyanne Conway and you know, and all these people. So I was going to save this one, but since you brought it up, uh, there was a Times Magazine article in the last month or so where Jeff Zucker basically says, "No, this is this is entertainment. Quite yeah. clearly, this is entertainment. These are characters in the show." I was listening to a Mark Barron interview you did a couple weeks ago yeah. where you said. The people I work with at CNN are playing characters on yeah. TV, and they, they put on a character. Yeah. Do you have any hesitation, given that you're lefty, given, given your politics, do you have any any hesitation about participating in a CNN product? Uh, whatever, the thing for me, whatever hesitation I had, CNN Im- invited me in to be a part of the original series thing. I'm 100% riding for Anthony Bourdain. I was 100% writing for Morgan Spurlock when he was there. Mike Rowe, like Mike Rowe showed Dirty Job. Those were things I liked. So it's almost like the news thing was a separate thing to me. Like, you know, I had my thoughts about CNN News. But I was like, do I want to have a show that follows Anthony Bourdain? Yes, I do. Yes, you I know, do. Yeah, like that's... So for me, it was like... If those shows hadn't existed, I think I would have had more thoughts about do I want to be at a, at a news network and do I want to be at CNN? Having said that, the news people have been super supportive of the, you know, overall, have been super supportive of the show in ways that it feels like they realize that we need to expand this thing. And our shows, as much as our shows are original series entertainment, we're held, I'm held to the same news. I mean, I, maybe I'm held to a higher standard because I'm a comedian. Like, they fact check the hell out of this show and really, like, make sure that, like, I'm not going to get them sued by saying nothing new. So it's really, like, I feel good about the fact that I work with them because they have the resources to help me fact check the show. So Be- Before I drop this, when you say that the, you think some of your coworkers, some of the folks at CNN are, are playing characters, oh, yeah. is there a kind of character you think they're playing or they, they have different roles? Yeah, I think, I think there's a... Th- I mean, if you're on TV regularly doing a thing whether it's uh you know an actor in a sitcom Anthony Anderson on Blackish or Don Lemon an hour a night you have to sort of turn into like what's the delivery system through which I deliver the information so when i say they're playing a character i don't want people to th- i don't necessarily mean they are being fake or that they're somehow like selling they're sort of like 
doing something that's disingenuous. Because that's about not uncommon on TV. No, right? it's not Espe- uncommon. Especially on TV. for news. I mean, yeah. there's, especially any any kind of thing where you're having a where the the typical mode is argument slash discussion. Yeah. Right. Oftentimes you hear about people saying, "Well, you've got to take this stance here because so and so is going to argue the other way, and we can't have you both agreeing." Yes. So. Like the first, I mean, I've said this before. I was super nervous about meeting Don Lemon when I first met him. I was super scared to be on his show because my image of Don Lemon was viral clips of of people getting mad at Don Lemon, and I was afraid that he would be mad at me, and I was afraid that he would think I was some sort of like how to go, you know. Don is excited to have me on the show because I think he feels like he gets to relax, like he gets to actually show a different version of himself. And for me, it's been fun to sort of allow him to do that, and and also to talk to the guy, to talk to these people off camera, and they're like, "Hey, man, blah 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 blah, hold on." tonight you know it's just like that's a skill like in america whether it's from walter cronkite through now likes their the character of the anchor you know what i mean they like the person who's like i'm here to deliver the news vice is doing a a version of this on hbo without an anchor because they said this is a weird you know anachronism we don't need it yeah and i gotta say you know that intellectually yeah yeah, and when you see them deliver the news and there's no persons that they come back to yeah attractive person saying this is what's happening you're like i'm 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 lost (laughs) i haven't seen it but i I need someone to help me who's pointing me in the right direction you need a a sherpa (laughs) so when i say they're like i would say like Wolf Blitz is the only one I know who seems to be the same on and off. Like, he seems to be like... That's his guy. Yeah, that's his guy. But there's a lot of them. It's like you see them, like, sort of, like, power up. And, I mean, I've seen this at other news channels, too. And the thing that I'm aware of is, like, when I... The thing I I highlighted on a Marin show is that I don't... I'm still figuring out how to do that. Like, I know how to be me on the United States of America. But, I like, yesterday I was on CNN three times. Like, I was on at 7.30 in the morning, 3.30 in the afternoon, 7.30 at night. And every time I'm, like, having to, like, where's the power on? Like, I'm sort of, like, you have three minutes to deliver what's, to connect what's with What's different about that than walking on stage and doing comedy? Because there you're st- there's I assume there's an on and off switch there, right? Yes, but there's a... It's, like, the difference between, like watching a pot of water boil and get having one of those things in your house where boiling water comes out automatically. <laughs> so like, Insta-hot. So at CNN, when I'm sitting with uh, Ana Cabrera on her show yesterday at 7.30 at night, I just walked out of the hotel, I walked across the street, I had a, like I was like, somebody have coffee? And I sit down, I better be Insta-hot. On stage, and this, especially the way I do it, you can sort of watch the pot boil. You know, you can sort of like you can sort of warm into it a little bit. And if the and if you realize that pot's not boiling, take that off, get another pot of water. You know, you can. There's a sense of the 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 pacing is different. And so for me, that's a more natural pacing. And so in United States of America, you we talk to Richard Spencer for a half hour, and you can sort of like sort of go back and forth, and a little bit of this. If me and him only had the six minute interview that we had, it would have been a different interview. That's why they have editing. That's why they have editing. We are going to let you pause for a second, reflect. Get some energy back. Your energy is great. And hear from our awesome advertisers. We'll be right back. Today's show is brought to you by Willis Towers Watson. Cybersecurity is one of the greatest threats any business faces. Last year, more than 400 million new malware threats were released and more than half a billion personal records are breached. Businesses spend $100 billion a year on cyber technology, but cybersecurity is as much about employee behaviors as it is the tech. The average network breach can cost $4 million in company losses. That's why you need to know about Willis Towers Watson. They understand the only comprehensive approach to cybersecurity is to deal with all of it, your people, your capital, and your technology risks. Willis Towers Watson decodes all that complexity. It is complex. Through a comprehensive three-stage approach, they assess the cyber risks throughout your business. They protect your company with best-in-class solutions, and they improve your ability to recover from future attacks. You can learn more about what Willis Towers Watson can do for you at willistowerswatson.com slash recode. That's willis towers watson.com slash recode. 
Today's show is also brought to you by HostGator. Are you ready to take your website to the next level? Whether you're a first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a great-looking website or even an online store. If you need a boost in hosting power, they can do that too. HostGator offers cloud, VPS, and dedicated server hosting that can easily handle maximum visitor traffic. See what HostGator can do for your website. Recode listeners get 60% off. That's 6-0. It's a lot. Go to HostGator.com slash Recode. That's HostGator, like an alligator, G-A-T-O-R, dot com slash Recode. And here's my friend Lauren Good with a word from Viacom. Hi, this is Lauren Good from The Verge. And we're all fans of something. I just say I'm a fan of outdoor sports and watching videos with adrenaline junkies, basically things I would never dare to do myself, but like maybe imagine that I could do. And that's all a part of our culture now. And the way we consume culture is changing. So the way fandom works is changing too. So there's this awesome new podcast about exactly that change called Fan Club. And it's about why we love what we love. Fan Club is a short series hosted by Ross Martin, who has perhaps thought more about fandom than anyone else on Earth. On Fan Club, Ross is trying to figure out how we're going to watch, listen to, and consume culture. He talks to a slew of amazing, brilliant people across the pop culture landscape, whether it's musicians, artists, fashion designers, chefs, even scientists, about how their work is being experienced today and how they think it's going to be experienced in the future. Fan Club will change the way you think about the things that you love. You can subscribe now at vbyviacom.com slash fan club or wherever you're listening to this show. We're back here with W. Kamau Bell, who has many projects, and we're not going to list them all again, but you should go consume or buy them all. Yes, because my daughters won't feed themselves. <laughs> I mean, they literally will, but they don't understand how money works. Does the podcast make money for you? I guess First Look's paying you, right? Yeah, First Look contracted us to do the podcast. So that's, I mean, it was, I mean, it wasn't the reason I did it, because at the time I thought I was already too busy. So when they came to, they came to me first and said, would you like to do a political podcast? And I was like, I don't have time for that. And they were like, well, they were like, well, let's, we kept having meetings about it. And I was like, I don't have time. I mean, I, yes, maybe, but I don't have time. And they said, well, maybe if you could have occasional co-hosts, like, you know, maybe Hari could be an occasional co-host. I was like, okay. And I said, look, if Hari can be my regular co-host every time, you have to go convince him. I'm not going to convince him. If you can convince him and Hari doesn't like to do anything, then I will I will commit to doing it. And they came back and goes, he's going to do it. Which, for the same reason, I wanted to do it. We, we are really good friends who don't talk often enough. There's more than one podcast in that format. <laughs> There's one called Call Your Girlfriend. We had Amina Sal from that. The same format. Oh, yeah, we yeah, just yeah. want to talk anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why don't this, you pay us to do it? Yeah, why don't you? If you're going to give us a structure. One of my best friends. It's the same thing. Me and uh, the, the Denzel podcast is based on friendship. For me, these are. That's why I love about podcasting. It's like it's a more intimate medium. So, like, it's based on me and his friendship. So, there's times last season on Politically Reactive where the audience would be mad at one of us. Or there's lots of. He, he revealed that he voted for Jill Stein before the, or he was going to vote for Jill Stein before the election, and you can hear my reaction like, why are you telling the audience that? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, even though we have a lot of lefty, 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 but at that yeah. point it felt like we, we can't waste any votes. And he had a, he, he had good reasons for it. He lives in New York. It's a blue state. But he, it was like, yeah. I had to go on the podcast the next time because he got a lot of hate. And I was like, look, you people don't understand. We will end this podcast today. It's about our friendship. It's not that. If you don't like Hari, then we'll just stop it. And people are like, you should get a new co-host. We'll just stop the whole thing. Is that the most intense feedback you got? I assume that CNN has the biggest reach in terms of the number of people who are going to engage with your stuff. I'm guessing the podcast people are the most engaged in terms of getting back to yeah, you. Yeah, because when, when people just like are you're in their ears and they can't even see you, they're sort of, they feel like you're all, you're like in there, a lot of times they're going to sleep or they're on the tread. Like it's like, it's a very intimate experience. And so I think the relationship you form with the podcast audience is very different than on TV. Because people on TV don't 
think you're talking to them. On a podcast, they think you're talking to them. Right, because also you get you leave the room, you're yeah. still talking. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? yeah. It doesn't happen on the podcast. You yeah, come yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, you follow them to work, and you follow, and you also they put you on in moments where they need like a solace or they need something. They, you know, people are like, you know, I'm so glad that there was a traffic jam today so I can listen to politically. Like they're using you to sort of like really take them away from the thing they don't want to deal with. So. For me, the idea is like it's a much more intimate, so people will get mad. They'll fact check us. They'll also call us out on things, and and sometimes we have to like, as I say, we have to bow up on them and go, okay, yes, you, maybe you're right about that, but be nice. <laughs> I don't want to do the full Marin, but the full Marin, the full I Marin. I, I, only Mark Marin can do Mark Marin. Yeah. Have you been doing comedy your entire life? Uh, no. Professionally? I mean, no. <laughs> no. I mean, I've been doing comedy since 1994, which at this point is. Uh, what is it? What is it? Two thousand. So more than half my life, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's most of your working life, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Twenty one. So I'm forty four. And how has your conception of what comedy would be as a profession changed? I mean, I thought when I started comedy, it was every comedian's thing was like you do comedy, you get a late night spot, you get a, you get a few like even. I mean, I think Carson when I started. No, Carson was off, but it was like you get on Leno right. or Letterman. Right. Was Leno was still a big deal. Leno was still Leno a big deal. There's, yeah, there's not. Letterman. There wasn't. Yeah, there, you get a you get a couple late night spots. You uh, do what you kill. You get an HBO hour. You become the one of the biggest stars in the country. You get a sitcom. You get a holding deal. You get a holding deal. You get a sitcom. You write a book, and you sort of cruise into syndication. So you know, at that point, it's like Seinfeld and Tim Allen. And that was your aspiration. I want to do that. That's well, my yeah. Plan. I grew up on sitcoms. You know, I was a big fan of Seinfeld. I, I sort of thought that was like yeah, and also you know that's that's the that's the path. So you know, we're talking pre-internet, pre-podcasting pre, you know, everything. So for me, it was like, and then once I started doing comedy for a few years and I realized, oh, first of all, I'm not a good comedian. I'm really bad. So this is going to take longer than I thought. (laughs) And two, I don't want to move to LA and audition for things. I don't, I'm not, I don't think I have a five minute late night spot set in me. So how am I going to get on late night TV? And certainly I'm not going to get on HBO because at that point, HBO had less and less spots at a certain point. It wasn't like it, like, and also I wasn't in line for those spots. Right, that comedy boom. Yeah, the comedy boom. Waxes died. and waves. So it was very rare to get the HBO. They're now coming back into the comedy game pretty strong, but it was very rare to get an HBO. Yeah, hour. shouldn't you be here promoting your Netflix show? I know. I'm so, come on, Netflix, call a brother. Sorry, uh, I didn't want to get a raw spot there. Yeah. And how did you retool yourself though? Once you sort of said, "All right, I'm not going to do that route." Once I, we are doing, we're doing like the half marin, uh, <laughs> the half marin, the half marathon. The once I realized in like 2007 that like my career of going to comedy clubs and standing in the back room waiting to get on and hoping Hollywood discover me wasn't going to work, I totally I left comedy clubs and started built this show in theaters, which is the W. Kamel Bell Curve ending racism in about an hour, and like sort of basically said, what would you? Do? I was like, I, I really I asked myself, Kamal, what Kamal? I asked myself, <laughs> what does Kamal want? What does Kamal want? I said, what would I do if I was already famous? What would the work I'd be doing? And I was like, I would like to have my version of the Daily Show. What about racism? Okay, how does that look? Okay, well, I don't have a TV show, so I need to go to a theater. I need to get a projector. I don't have a projector. I need to make one of those PowerPoint things. I don't know how to do that. But I was like, that's what I would do. So I just did it. I put the cart well before the horse. So here's a good dumb question for you. Great. Um, it's my specialty. Why did you decide early on in your career, I want to talk about racism. That's going to be sort of the focal point of this hour and my comedy. I didn't really decide. I really feel like I got pulled into it. Uh, but And I think I got pulled into it because that was the way I grew up. My household was one of those households where my mom was always bringing people in. There was always sort of like black people having conversations about everything. So it could be about... 
uh, you know, did you hear that new <laughs> Temptation song? And also, man, this cracker at work, blah, 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 blah. You know, did you t- talking about, like, when I grew up, there was, like, you know, whites only this and da-da-da. My mom grew up in Indiana. She was born in 1937, which is basically 1937 Indiana is, like, 1865 New York City. <laughs> like, it's just, like, you know, there's really very segregated. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so she... You know, so there was just conversations about the struggle, and this is post civil rights, but there's still conversations about the movement and or post the civil rights era. So it's like, so in a sense, I thought they were having conversations about the past or that they were complaining, and I thought, well, it's Martin Luther King solved racism. I'm not going to deal with that. But then, as I became a teenager, I started to experience racism. Uh, as I became a black teenager who was tall, and then people start treating you, even though you're 14, they treat you like you're 25, and they also think that you're going to steal or you're a future criminal. That it just sort of like when I started doing comedy, I started doing comedy because I love Saturday Night Live, Richard, uh, uh, Eddie Murphy, and the artist formerly known as Bill Cosby. I just liked comedy. Then I would just, every now and again, I'd do jokes about racism and the audience would pull back and I would be like, why is that not working? And I sort of was like a pendulum for years, back and forth between like aggressively talking about racism and not talking about racism. And in comedy clubs, if you talk about any subject for too long, they just, people just go, could you move on? Even Chris enough. Rock, I've had enough. Yeah, even Chris Rock. The perception is he talks about racism a lot. He's like, it's like fifteen percent of my act, right? He's like, it's people think it's there when it's not there, but it's the stuff I'm known for. But it's not actually the whole thing. So for me, I just was like, I think I really just want to talk about racism, and I realized I couldn't do that in a comedy club. I had to do that. In a th- so I got, I really got pulled into it. My mom was often like, you don't have to talk about racism if it's too hard. She said, this is what I want to talk about. The format doesn't allow me to it, so yeah. I'm going to go do a format that allows me to do the what I want to do. The format and my talent don't allow me to. If I was better, maybe I would. But really going to, outside of it was like, it was like going to, going to theaters for me was also like, it's like expanding my creative creativity, but it was also like going to the gym, like getting reps that I couldn't get in the comedy club because I was doing seven minute sets or thirty minutes. Where it's like I'd, you know, I'd go to the theater and do my bell curve show, and I'd do ninety minutes and not even realize what had happened. Do you feel like being a comic who's known for talking about race, known for talking about politics, is a net benefit to you? Because people say, "Oh, I know what he does. That's a thing. I, I know where to slot him in." Or do you say, or do you think it holds you back because people think that's all you can do and all you do? Yeah, I, it's funny. I, I think it's great. <laughs> I think it's great that people have a sense of what I do. Some people would say, you always talk about racism, then don't come to the show. Like, I don't, like, I, you know I don't think getting. I do. Yeah. But for me, every comic, I think there's a misconception that, like, people see me so like, he's always talking about racism. Okay, Jim Gaffigan's always talking about food. You know, like, it's just like, it's just, these are the things, every comic picks the subjects they want to talk about. It's just because some comic subjects are more, like, on the surface inflammatory or more, quote-unquote, like, meaningful you get you get some more a different type of attention. So for me, it's like every comic is picking things to talk about, and we all you know the weird thing about comedy is that we all end up going to the comedy club expecting the audience to sort of ride for all of our things. And so for me, and Chris Rock believes you should be able to get a random comedy club audience. I believe that, but I also kind of believe that like I, th- I understand myself to be sort of a niche product. Like I'm not for everybody, and and I like going to the comedy clubs and playing there. But if it doesn't work there, I don't think that means it's broken. There was this idea that you heard or I heard during the, especially the end of the Obama years, you'd hear it from conservative commentators. So I don't think really believed it, but they were saying it. They'd say, uh, race has gotten worse in this country because of Obama. Uh, somehow electing a black president has made race relations worse. And I thought, well, this is just cynical bullshit. But post-Trump, now I have to sort of reassess. Do you think that the people who were saying that were correct, and we've all just said our. Well, obviously, you don't think that Obama made race relations worse, but do you? I think I don't. I'm trying trying to form the right question here, but you know what I'm asking. Yeah, I don't think Obama made race relations worse. I think people's response to Obama 
racist people's response to Obama made race relations worse. I think Obama is pretty like he's, I mean, he's, he's a centrist with with left leanings like you know but he's like you know he's not a dude who came in there going we're gonna make gay marriage legal you know he's no, not no, like, he's, he was a middle of the road middle of the road. harvard con law he guy. just he you know he was smart you know you got to figure out how to how to win and he understood how to how to lean to the left and cloak himself in progressive values but at the end of the day you know he just took 400 grand for us he's gonna take 400 grand for a speech to wall street i'm not surprised i'm not one of those people like how could he yeah that's what he does he didn't put those people in jail <laughs> like he didn't like you know so, so you hear from people well-meaning people who say well you maybe you shouldn't harp on race so much because if you're going to talk about it constantly you're just going to throw in people's and you, you could do the routine as much as yeah, better yeah. than i can yeah no uh i just that i know what i'm i'm pretty sure at this point like i said i've been doing this for most of my life now i know what i'm here to do I also know what I can't do. In the same way that you don't want to hear, and I'm not, Jerry Seinfeld's one of the greatest comedians of all time. Nobody's coming to hear Jerry Seinfeld talk about racism. Just because that's not Although what he, does. he dips into it occasionally. Well, he, now, but very As the cranky old man. Very, yeah, sort of like as, the, as, yeah, not in a way like, I'm here to talk about racism. He, he sort of does the thing yeah. as a white person who sort of is like, doesn't know how to speak on it. Yeah. So, in the same way that like, if you went to see Chris Rock and he was just talking about, nothing you know socks and like you know the remote control you'd be like what the hell is this so i i feel like this is what i do you can i feel fortunate that i live in a time where what i do there's more outlets for it i think if i was doing this in the, in the 90s you know i would i would not be as financially uh i would not be as successful career-wise as i am because see also cnn in the 90s wasn't putting these kind of shows on so for me i feel very fortunate that i that I live in the time I live in, so that there's podcasting and there's there's docu series. I think back in the day I would have had a much harder time. What, how do you think about timeliness in comedy uh, now? I'm pro- I guess it's probably always the case, but I was listening to your special you did last year mm-hmm. on the way in. You've got jokes about the Republican primary, mm-hmm. so there's like a Ben Carson joke, which seems yeah. less relevant. There's a Donald Trump joke, seems pretty relevant. <laughs> I wrote it down here because I, I, I want to quote it correctly. You described him as a nagging cough. That has turned into full blown AIDS. You yeah. probably recorded that about a year ago. That was a year and a half ago. And I, I when I recorded, I was like, "This joke's going to be good for longer." But I was going to put it. I really sort of like wish I could still do that joke. <laughs> so I have to write a better joke than that. So how do you, do you think? Like, I got to work on stuff that's going to work for a longer period, or I got to understand that whatever I do is going to go away in a couple news cycles. I I got to understand that uh, whatever I do that I that I have to write the best joke I can in the moment that I can. If you listen, Lenny, and often the, the comedians that America sort of puts says are the highest expression of stand-up comedy are comedians who, if you put on a Lenny Bruce record right now, we would be sitting here like we were listening to somebody talk about algebra. You know, not that. You yeah, know, no, no. I, I, I've, I've tried it. It doesn't work. You got to, you got to go back and get the Wikipedia out and figure yeah, out what he's talking about. Yeah, and you got to be like, who's these actors he's talking about that I that everybody's like, oh my god, you said that yeah. guy. <laughs> you know, like, like he's making a joke to basically be like about an actor who's like William F Macy. I was watching like, the, oh, Macy, the sh- yeah. one of the Chappelle specials and he's talking about Ebola. I'm like. Oh, that was a couple yeah. of years ago. Right. I think that there's different types of comedians. And I think that, like, even somebody like Seinfeld, again, to sort of go back to him, who you think is timeless, if you look at his act, he's going to have a joke about from 20 years ago. He's got jokes about probably pagers. You know what I mean? There's just yeah. comedians. I think comedy is always, overall, loses its steam over time. You know, the only joke that I can think of from, like, I don't know what, from the last century that still stands up is who's on first. If you put it on, it's oh, that's still kind of funny. You know, my daughter would think that was funny. But a lot because it's about wordplay, whereas like you know. But if you put on like Bob Hope, 
America's greatest comedian at the time, it's not going to make any sense. So I think the nature of stand-up comedy, it's different than music. And I think that's why people sort of don't take it as seriously. You put on the Beatles now, the Beatles are always going to be regarded as some of America, uh, sort of the, the, the world's highest pop music. But at some point, that George Carlin clip that we're all still sending around, you're gonna, it's going to be like, people are going, I don't understand, what does he mean? Needs an explainer. What does he mean a place for our stuff? What is stuff? We don't have things. <laughs> Explainers are not as, are not as, as, yeah, not as fun. And when you start to put explainers on comedy, it literally it loses all. When you have to go, let me explain, it loses. So I think that comedy is in its nature temporary in the same way. That's why it's funny to think it does make sense that I'd be at, the, at a news network because that's also temporary. Nobody wants the greatest hits of CNN on DVD. No. <laughs> Although they, they, they did a series like last year, like the 60s, the 70s, well, no, the 80s. But see, they're finding a way to recontextualize news events yeah. as cultural events. I was surprised I saw a bit of one of them it was talking about and they were going through 80s talk show hosts yeah it's like oh wow Morton yeah. Downey Jr. Yeah. totally forgot about him yeah. that was a whole format and I think that CNN the thing that I'm really happy with about CNN is they're understanding there's a thing called news there's also a thing called relevancy and I've always existed in a place that I feel like I just want to be relevant. And so when I sit down and write a joke, I'm like, what is this joke about? If it's just sort of funny, I probably won't do it if I can't find a frame that makes it relevant to my life or now. You're a Twitter person, speaking of relevancy and immediacy. Do you workshop jokes on Twitter, or is that a different oh, yeah. kind of discussion? No, I mean, some, I mean, a lot of the... It's funny, the things that get the most attention I do on Twitter are things where I'm really just sort of pointing out problems and telling people to sign up for something. <laughs> like, you know, like, go here, get donate to this. But no, a lot of times, there's jo- like I had a joke the other day I wrote on Twitter that and I was like, oh, this is, I should say this on stage. And I have said it on stage once, and I'm like, we'll see. But it's super, I can tell you, because it's probably not going to last that long. Because it was, uh, but I wrote it, and I was like, this might be funny in your life. And I did it once, and it was funny. Uh, I hope it's still funny when I go on tour, because I really just love the, anyway. The jo- it was <laughs> Jeffrey Lord had said that Donald Trump was the Martin Luther King Jr. of healthcare. And I said, and I've talked about that son too. Jeffrey Lord is the Kellyanne Conway of Sean Spicer's. Uh. <laughs> you can't tell because it's a podcast, but I'm making I'm making a funny face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I just I just the the idea that like when I wrote, I was like, I just love, love the way it just sounds like he's the or he's the Sean Spicer of Kellyanne Conway's. That's why it's funny. Yeah, are, are, uh, is is there a tra- can you transfer a joke that works on Twitter to a joke that works on stage, or they're they're different medium and different ideas? Uh, from some comics are one lighter comics, so they can like you know, Parnon on Cheryl probably can transfer a lot of her Twitter jokes to on stage jokes. For me. Those usually that's the premise of a bigger joke. So it's usually like that's the if that gets a laugh, that means I need to keep. So it's like it's 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 good to have those jokes as the starter of premises. It's like the it's like when you make a roux, you need the stuff at the bottom. Of oh, the we, gumbo. we get cooking class too. That's yeah. great. It's like a gumbo. You need the roux, the stuff that sort of powers the gumbo. That's the, the sticky roux. stuff. The sticky stuff. I just don't flour in. Yeah, yeah, usually works. And right? It's got to be dark. The darker it is, the better it is. So the more concentrated it is, the better it is. We got comedy school. We got cooking tips. Yeah, what else we got to learn today? Oh, you know, learn about... Uh, <laughs> I got a lot of things. I'm pretty smart and well-read. <laughs> so go read the book. Go listen to the, to the multiple podcasts. you're telling me to read the book. No, no, no. You, yeah. you, you don't need to read. I'm telling the audience. Go consume Kamau Bell, however you can consume him. Hopefully paying money directly. Indirectly, if you see me in the streets, hand me some cash. Hand him some cash. You can hit him on Twitter. Um, you guys know where to find me because you're listening to this podcast right now. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, there's about a year's worth of these things. They're really fun. They're fun for me to record. I think you'll like listening to them. Who did we talk to? Scott Frank. That was fun. Neil Gaiman. Glenn Beck was kind of fun to talk to. <laughs> oh, I gotta listen to that. It was a weird one. Because he's, um, he is a weird one. It was a weird setup in addition to it. I think it would have been a weird interview under any circumstance. This one was live at a bar at South oh, By. Oh, oh, um, yeah. I couldn't hear him. Oh. Because oh. of the 
miking, but we we worked it out. You guys can go listen to it. Again, it's free. If you like it, all we ask is that you review or rate us or subscribe. One of those things would be great. Kara Swisher's a podcast. Rico Dico. Lauren Good has Too Embarrassed to Ask. You can find them wherever you find this show or other fine shows like this show. You are smart. You will figure it out. Thanks to our sponsors. We love our sponsors. Mac Weldon, Willis Towers Watson, HostGator, and Viacom. Thanks to Digital Media, who sells all those ads. Thanks to Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson for producing, and Chris Basil for putting this all together. Thanks to you guys again. We'll see you next week.